Hi again, and thanks for tuning in to Liquid Sound, a show dedicated to music, songwriting, and the creative process. I'm your host, Gino Brand, and we're brought to you in cooperation with the Liquid Arts Network. Our guest today is Jordan Lewis. Jordan is a multi-instrumentalist and a composer based out of Los Angeles. He and I are old friends who met about a decade ago when we were both living in Busan. And after he left Korea, he went on to earn an MFA in film composition from Columbia College, Chicago, and has since been pursuing a career in music composition for film and television. A few of his many music credits include ABC's Stumptown, USA's The Purge, the hip-hop documentary G-Funk, and last year's Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. Jordan and I recorded a remote episode where we chatted about his experiences working in TV and film and where he sees that industry going, the influence that his musical family had on him, playing keyboards for Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains, and lots more. We also listened to a few of his compositions. This first one is called Searching. Uh, Searching was written this year as a demo for uh, Adventure Fantasy Film, which one of the things that's happened in the pandemic is that a lot of movies with lower music budget the bigger fish, uh, the bigger composers are swooping down to scoop up whatever they can because just like us, everyone's hungry. So I don't actually know who that went to. I never, you know, crept in on IMDb to see who ended up with it, but, um, well, it wasn't me. Um, and they wanted sort of John Williams, like epic fantasy style things. So there's, you know, hook and, um, bits of home alone, maybe a little bit of star Wars, Harry Potter, um, stuff like that, that sort of, particular john williams that's what they were going for and so this one if i'd gotten the gig would have been recorded uh with an orchestra but this is uh an entirely software piece of music as it is now If you had to boil it down to its essence, what would you say are the biggest takeaways from your time in music school? I guess not to be too sort of new agey about it, but that this whole profession is is a lifelong endeavor. That there is no, you know, there is no okay, like I made it. Like like the the tools, the tech, the industry, like they're all evolving constantly and 
every person's path through it all is completely different. And you, you know, it, you can't compare your age and your credits or whatever to anybody else because it, it's just going to end up being a sort of useless exercise and that you have to be patient and work hard. And so long as you do those things and you have some amount of talent, you will find some way to make a reasonable living. Hmm. Another big takeaway was that I had a lot of catching up to do with the tech. You know, I was pretty literate in film music just by virtue of having loved soundtracks since I was a kid, but understanding how these things are made beyond, you know, my experience in a DAW, a digital audio workstation was largely confined to recording audio because that's the kind of musician I was for my whole life. And then all of a sudden diving in and learning how to work with all these software tools, how to convincingly program orchestral samples to sound as human as possible and the layers of additional programming that need to go into it to get that detail that makes it convincing enough for people to buy it. You know, most of the, with the exception of big films, a lot of, especially in TV, a lot of the music that you hear is made entirely by computers. Well, made by, made by people on computers. We're not there yet with AI. Um, we will be, but not yet. We're close. But yeah, so that was as I, you know, looked at my classmates who had known for years that this is what they wanted to do. And they had been learning and studying the software angle of it, which is just as important as the business or the underlying musical ability and all the other things. And that I had a lot of work to do. And I wasn't music tech illiterate. I was just sort of ignorant of like the the relevant pieces of software and virtual instruments and and programming aspect of music in film or music on television, especially on the orchestral side, which, you know, of course, like, you know, having studied orchestration and composition, like those all lend themselves to it, but how to make it good, how to make it sound good. That's, you know, that's where it gets pretty tricky. Well, you have been doing this for a number of years now. So is there any advice that you would give to your younger self, like yourself when you first moved to LA and were just starting out? So I had the biggest one is um, I worked, so a lot of folks when they first move out here, unless they have, you know, like a really good example of someone who was just, you know, part of its good luck and part of its well positioning is a composer who's about my age and is you know early to mid thirties, maybe a couple years older than me, uh, Justin Hurwitz, who scores all of Damien Chazelle's films. So Whiplash, La La Land, First Man. Justin Hurwitz is an excellent composer, but there are thousands of other excellent composers who are probably more experienced than him um, in town. They were roommates at Harvard. And that's how that ended up coming around. And so this, so I guess what I'm about to say wasn't necessarily relevant for a person like him because he just happened to know such a wildly talented, talented filmmaker in Damien Chazelle that his career found a sort of early kickstart that most of us don't have, but again, no two roads are the same and um, you know what they do, it works. So kudos to them. But a lot of folks when they first move out here work for established or more experienced senior composers as you know sometimes as techs um, occasionally as the office bitch assistant i never had to do that as orchestrators as programmers as mixers as uh, quote-unquote additional music composers which is you know credited writing on somebody else's gig so if you know the busy composers get so busy that they can't handle other minutes so they subcontract parts of what they're working on to other composers and my gig out here i worked for a couple different people early on and those were great gigs, but those composers weren't like exceptionally busy. So when, you know, that show didn't get renewed or this film was finished and they're like, well, I don't have anything else. See you next time. And so, you know, I moved on. 
Uh, but I landed with this one guy who I worked with for four years and he and I were, like, were still great friends and it'll be a unique relationship for me in my life. He's probably just about 50 and, you know, a sweet guy. And we spent, you know, for four years, it was me and him. And then at the end of the day, he was home with his wife and kids. And I went home to my wife and cats and like, so we just, we spent a lot of time together for a really long time. And there was sort of an understanding that as our relationship developed and as time moved on, that we would hire more people, which we eventually did, and that we would start to co-score projects. Meaning like if you look at a credit for you know a television show, it's like music by X and Y versus music by X and then somewhere deep in a credit scroll, uh, additional music or programming or whatever by Y. And for reasons that were mostly beyond his control, that didn't end up becoming an option. And so I had spent four years which I don't feel I wasted by any means. I developed, you know, my, my mixing chops in particular, but also my programming, how I interface with clients was hugely influenced by what I observed this person whom I respect greatly, um, how he, he interfaced with his clients, what battles he chose to fight and what battles he chose to ignore, uh, for the sake of his relationship, his professionalism, his reputation, all these things. But having said that advice to my younger self would be to not get complacent and, to trust myself more than anyone else yeah well that's really good advice and it seems to be working out for you so far um last summer i got to visit you in la and we went to the movies and saw hobbs and shaw because you had composed a lot of the music for that and that was super cool but i remember there being a few moments while we were watching when you were cringing a bit at what had been done to the music that you had composed can you tell us a bit about that experience working on that movie? Sure, I, I can. Um, so that that the lead composer on that is a really wonderful dude. His name's Tyler Bates. I worked on about a half a dozen projects with him last year. And we had half a dozen more lined up for this year, but then, you know, COVID. And Tyler's a really good dude. And he's kind of atypical amongst film composers because he's very focused and accomplished in uh, the rock and metal popular music spheres. You know, he was Marilyn Manson's producer and touring guitarist for years. He's producing uh, Jerry Cantrell's next solo record. He just finished producing uh, Bush's next record. Yep. Bush is making a new record. That's correct. Okay. You, heard, you, you heard it here first. <laughs> Good to know. Good to um, know. All you Bush heads out there. Yeah, that's right. Razor Blade Suitcase, bro. Um, first song <laughs> I ever played stone. live. First song I ever played live was Swallowed in fifth grade, Battle of the Bands. <laughs> Um, I played keyboards. Yeah. Okay. Anywho. Um, so, uh, Tyler brought me on to write a lot of the action music for that fast and the furious movie, because those, that's the stuff that's really, really labor intensive because it's all, you know, like, I think my slowest cue in that movie is like 135, 140 BPM. Um, most are 160 plus. And so a minute of music of dense orchestral rock at 160, it's a lot of bars. It's a lot of bars. Whereas some sort of something mysterious or tense at 80 BPM is not so many bars. It's half as many bars and have and like way less involved and way less dense. And so I got a lot of really, really dense music to write. And f- especially for action blockbusters, the way these things are made, you know, for like if if you're working on an indie drama or whatever, any drama, actually, the composers will not receive the film to really start working in earnest until the edit is finished. The picture is locked. And so you know you're not trying to hit a moving target. However, when you have crazy accelerated post schedules, especially because The Rock has to go shoot Jumanji 2 and can't come back to do pickups for months, 
<laughs> you're working because he's like the most famous person in the world. You're you're working on these things, and you're you are trying to hit a moving target because you know once or twice a week they're sending out new picture edits and. You know, if you think about like a chase or action sequence, like there's all these edits and the music has to reflect and hit and acknowledge all of these things and turn on a dime. And then I get a new picture edit, you know, import it in onto my rig and I'm looking at it and it's like, well, okay, now where I used to have, you know, the bad guy theme, Idris Elba's theme is now over the rock and Jason Statham. That does, that's not right. So you have to, and this stuff, which already has, you know, tons of like, you know, you're, maybe you're cranking along at, you know, in four, four. And then you have, and then you have to, then you have like 21 beats to make it to the next cut. You do three bars of seven, eight, or maybe you're in seven, eight and all of a sudden there's, and you need to drop two beats. So you shift to five, eight for one bar. And so those little things, and you know, you move through a series of key areas to give it some novelty. So you're not just, you know, hammering on the same idea. And modulation is a great way to continue using the same underlying musical material, but make it feel different. Like if you're going along and you have some, you know, dun, 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 and then you move it up a minor third, dun, 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 like then yeah. you're, you know, you're, you've just upped the stakes without actually doing anything, but moving the voicing. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of that stuff, you get a new cut and what used like a modulation that used to take place over a four bar window or a, you know, a seven second window, all of a sudden you have two beats to make because something got lifted or cut or whatever. And so it was just, it's really hard to keep up with all those conforms. And by the time you're on the third or fourth conform, and that's what we call the process of taking an existing piece of music and um, adapting it to fit an updated version of picture. By the time you're on like conform three or four, the integrity of the underlying musical ideas begin to suffer. And that's kind of hard. And you just sort of have to accept it for like, you know, it's like, listen, like we're not trying to make any art here. We're trying to serve the picture and the vision of the director. And at the end of the day, for like all the music that I wrote, like there's, you know, diesel engines and explosions and Jason Statham screaming and you just can't hear any of it. So like that's blades. exactly. So, you know, like it, it, it's, it's serviceable, but one of the things that then happens is that, so, you know, at a certain point we, you know, regardless of how much the score is approved, you know, depending on when the final sound mix is for the film, you've, you've got to record the score. So I was still working on revisions and Tyler, the lead dude and his lead orchestrator and conductor, Tim, and one of the other writers went over to London, did five days at Abbey Road. And they hadn't even, they hadn't even finished their reshoots yet, but we just like, we were out of time. We had to do it. And so then at a certain point, once it's recorded, it's, it's recorded and you can, you can get creative with it, but not as creative as you can when you're just working with MIDI. You know, and then at a certain point I was done, you know, my work on the, on the, on, on that film was done. And then for universal, they've got all their, you know, their graphics department, their VFX people, they're all still working. And then maybe there's subsequent picture edits. There was certainly subsequent picture edits, many of them that I was unaware of because it wasn't relevant to me anymore. And so then by the time I actually got to sit down and go see this thing in a theater, there were shots that I had never seen before. And I worked on this thing for two and a half months while it was already in post-production. It's not like I saw it early on. Like I was, I was there deep through most of post and yeah, they still ended up changing a hell of a lot of things. And so then at a certain point, they've got to hack and slash the score with probably coarser fingers than what we would have if we had been brought on to do the music edits ourselves. But at that point, there's no time. They got to get it out to China, which released a month earlier than the US. And it just is what it is. At a certain point, you kind of have to let it be what it is. Yeah. Well, I had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean... I- 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's a popcorn flick. Like you know, it, it, you don't go in there expecting to see a film. You go in there expecting to have some fun and a couple good laughs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was still really proud of you. But I think it's time to listen to another one of your tracks. So tell us about Miniatures. Uh, sure. Uh, Miniatures is a quartet written for violin, clarinet, cello, and piano. When I was in college, I saw um, Olivier Messiaen's Quartet for the End of Time, um, which was written while he was in a Nazi internment camp in France somewhere. And it was actually performed initially on Christmas Day. I can't remember. I want to say 44. And it's weird and modern, but also still traditional and, and like, you know, nods to sacred music. It was just like, it was really affecting when I saw it. And one of my undergraduate professors reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to submit a chamber piece for a new music festival. And I was given a sort of choice of instrumentation. You know, the, the, I could have written for something as big as I think probably a 10 piece ensemble, but I chose that quartet and uh, right around the same time I had seen a, a museum exhibit on like miniature sculptures. A lot of them were, you know, like houses, dollhouses, things like that. And like some were like really like kind of dark and gothic and twisted and some were like a little girl's fantasy and others were, you know, sort of weird and funky and bohemian eclectic. And so I just like all of these things side by side, I just, I thought it was really cool, all the different parts of the whole. And so that was sort of the inspiration for like the different modules in this, whereas there are definitely some non sequiturs, but at least it, it, it all feels coherent in my mind when I listen to it.
few years ago, I got to visit your your family in Massachusetts, which is really cool. And I know your dad plays a bit of bass. He sure does. And your brother works in uh, live sound, or you, at least at the time he was working in live sound. How much of that do you think influenced the, the career path that you decided to take? Um, a lot of it. My mom was a singer-songwriter. In her day, she was a rhythm guitarist um, and, a, and a very good singer. My dad's mom was a composer. Um, my dad's dad played in a Baroque recorder ensemble. And my aunt was a great pianist. And it's just sort of, yeah, it's very much in my family. But I, I will say that my brother and me are the first of anyone in our sort of extended family for generations who have done, who have chosen to work in music as a profession. And I would say that, you know, my, my uncle, my dad's brother is a monstrous pianist, you know, really like he was, you know, taking private lessons at Juilliard when he was a boy, like he is exceptional, definitely the most musical of all of us. And he, you know, was coming up in New York, he was doing a lot of the, uh, improv comedy backing piano. Like have you ever, what was that show? Uh, whose line is it anyway? Mm-hmm. Like they always have a pianist on and that was what my uncle did like for the, for Jane Curtin and John Goodman and, you know, Arsenio Hall and like the, you know, like when that sort of, that kind of improv was really taking, taking off in New York, my uncle was like one of the two go-to pianists and he could have had a great career there, but my grandfather was a pretty strict dude. And, uh, so my uncle became a lawyer, uh, <laughs> and he still plays and he's still great, but I think he, you know, when, when we talk about it, uh, about music, I try to be pretty sensitive because I know it's um, it hits him in a in a very deep and emotional place. And I wish he had done that, but you know, life is what it is. And especially with my brother, you know, he showed such strength in music when we were so young. He's a great drummer and uh, all around just erudite dude. So you know, in that sort of way that younger siblings, you know, whether consciously or not, follow in the footsteps of their older siblings. You know, my interest in music was definitely reinforced by him and also by my my older sister who's 10 years older when she went off when i was you know eight to go on grateful dead tour and catch the last couple of years before jerry died she left me with dozens of bootleg sets of grateful dead and fish and you know and then also a bunch of you know smashing pumpkins and pearl jam and you know all the what is still my favorite 90s music and so all that stuff we were a household that was very interested in music of all shapes and sizes so yeah definitely um and i'm glad we have that when we're all together which is rare these days but when we're all together that we can all sit down and play music together is is pretty cool and and that ray just slides right in yeah it's really beautiful to get to have that connection with your family like that uh now if you had to make some kind of prediction as to what's going to happen to your industry after the pandemic what what do you expect to happen um this is going to kind of be a roundabout answer but i think we need to look back at the most recent impacting sort of situation and how that affected the entertainment industry. And so that's the 08 crash. And in television, after the 08 crash, all of a sudden, pretty much everybody started making kind of whatever reality television. By everybody, I mean everybody. Like MTV became unrecognizable after 2008 as music television, right? And of course, they'd had real world and road rules for a decade before that, but um, that trend just accelerated and proliferated everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, Discovery Channel, History Channel, everything. So like, as everyone was feeling the pinch for money and, you know, the accountants doing the math and everything, like it it turns out you can make reality TV for 10% of the cost that it takes to make a narrative show. Mm. And it does 90% as well. People are still going to watch it. 
And so we're just going to do the bachelorette season 56 instead of, you know, something perhaps a bit more substantial because at this point we're just used to it. And so that was one of, that was one of the biggest things in television from 08 was the shift towards unscripted television. And then in film, the way that uh, films were financed changed the big blockbusters, your star Wars, your star Trek, your fast and the furious, your whatever, any of those big ticket films, uh, nothing changed there. Mm. You know, you can still get if, for, you know, if, if you get, that kind of star power and, you know, that kind of funding, like, yeah, you can make a $200 million movie still. That was unchanged. But what you stopped seeing was funding. And there are notable exceptions to this. Like A24, I think is, is one of the best studios and production entities ever, but they're really a, a light in the indie, indie scene right now. But after 08, there were very few films being made between two and $50 million. Hmm. So if it was super cheap, fine. We're not going to lose that much. But with the decline in box office attending, uh, sorry, uh, box office sales, the idea that we're going to make a 20, 25 million, I don't know what the budget was, uh, whatever, $25 million usual suspects, knowing that most people aren't going to go see it in the theater. They just like, that was a risk that no longer was worth the reward given the new reality after the, the financial crisis. And that legacy has largely stuck. And so this the pandemic the and the the long-term effects of 2020 will have i think probably more serious implications than what we saw after the 08 crash um and this is you know i guess a reasonably informed opinion but it you know an opinion it is i think that this will accelerate the death of cable and probably also of network programming so but you know network you know abc nbc cbs kind of fox but i think that you know tnt usa MTV, VH1, all the Viacom networks, Bravo, all those I think will die quickly in the five years after this. Whereas in the absence of the pandemic, it might've taken them 10 years to die um, as we all move towards streaming as, I mean, music was on a 15 year accelerated timeline in that regard. Whereas we moved away from sort of traditional consumption mediums and we moved entirely to streaming pretty much. Most people consume their music almost exclusively on streaming platforms and it will be the, it will become the same with television it was just a matter of time but i think this process will seriously accelerate that that has a lot of implications for folks in my world for people who work in uh, music for film and television because the biggest obstacle that this sort of permanent and inevitable shift towards streaming consumption of of media mm-hmm. The most important thing for us is that there is there are mechanisms put in place to provide fair compensation for people who have any kind of uh, royalty structure associated with what they do. The same is true for actors. So hopefully those things will get addressed in a meaningful way because it's the kind of thing where you know still there's this you know this lingering thing in our culture. It's like everyone loves music and everybody values music. Like I don't I know very few people who are like not at all into music and yet there's remains this idea that being a musician is not a real job or you know <laughs> it like that unless you're like a teacher or you're in a symphony orchestra that it's not it's not real, it's childish and this lingers and this remains. Um yeah. And it will just become such a barrier knowing that traditional outlets and we're going to just really have to return to a live space but that presents problems in this present moment. And I talked to my brother a lot about this because as you said he's a He's a touring sound guy and he spent, he did two full European tours last year and this year was shaping up to be just as busy and awesome for him. And it all, it's all gone as it is for so many creative people right now. 
And then on the on the on the cinema side of things, Cineworld, I think it's Cineworld is the name of the conglomerate who own Regal Cinemas. They just mothballed all of their theaters. And so if a movie like Hobbs and Shaw, which did over a billion, it had, a, I think, a $200 million budget. It did over a billion dollars international box office, including the U.S. And if these entities that own and operate these movie theaters go bankrupt because of an extended shutdown or city or, or national ordinances having to do with public health during a pandemic, then you're not going to get $200 million movies anymore because where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. You're not going to make a billion dollars in streaming. And so that's a pretty serious variable for film. The safest place to be right now still is in advertising, which has always been the safest place to be. And the budgets in advertising remain awesome because anyone who's like actually, you know, not just pulling some piece of music out of a music library for their, for their ad, but people who are actually, you know, producing things with a substantial budget, they're part of massive multinational media conglomerates or just corporations writ large and for them to drop a hundred grand on a music budget for a 90 second ad campaign is a great tax deduction. It's super easy. And so the budgets for that are still great. And that's probably not going anywhere for a while. Um, but video games within my peer group and just my profession in general, the only people that I know for the most part who have worked throughout are people who are working in animation or games, because those mediums being graphical in nature can be done entirely remotely. And you can be sort of in production, so to speak, on those just with everybody diffuse and, you know, on some team application, just collating all their stuff and making sure everybody's still on the same page. You don't need to be in an office. You don't need to be on set. And like, you know, video games have been a bigger industry, you know, at a dollar level than film or television for probably 10 years now. And frankly, some of the best new orchestral music in the last 20 years has come out of video games. It's really thriving as a medium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will be interesting to see where it all ends up going. Uh, but I would like to listen to another one of your compositions. So could you tell us a bit about Domino Theory? Sure. Domino Theory was written several years ago. I was demoing for like, it was in English, but I think it was a Bulgarian film that a friend of a friend knew the filmmaker. And so I ended up getting asked to do a demo to picture. And this cue is what came out of my demo for that. And it was like a very sort of weird, quirky, dark comedy noir that kind of took itself a little seriously. And that was in the same year following um, The Hateful Eight, which is the only Tarantino film to have like a fully original score without any songs, with the exception of that one song that Jennifer Jason Lee plays on that guitar. Oh, by the way, do you know the story of that guitar? <laughs> I think you've told me, but go ahead and tell it. I probably have. I like telling that story. Um, so the guitar that I think it's Kurt Russell, either him or, or Madsen, eventually smashes the one that Jason, Jennifer Jason Lee was playing. Um, that was like a priceless 150-year-old, I think, Gibson. Oof. And they had, you know, it had been on loan to Tarantino for this film. And they were supposed to have swapped it out between when she was done playing the song and when it was smashed, and they didn't. <laughs> so they they just wrecked, Tarantino just wrecked this priceless guitar. But anyway, so Morricone's score had like a bit of Americana and a bit of his, you know, spaghetti Western thing that he's always done, uh, rest in peace. But then it also had this this kind of like a little bit of a jazz sensibility 
to it with a lot of low winds and like some cool stuff. So that was really in my headspace at the time. And the filmmakers said they really liked John Williams, but like, I guess for a film like that, it would kind of be like the home alone, John Williams, not the star Wars, John Williams. And so I was kind of trying to read between the lines on things. And so that recording of domino theory is also all a software mock-up. None of that is real humans. And of course, like if I had gotten that gig, eventually I would have gone and re-recorded all that stuff. I'm still fond of it regardless. Some of the programming isn't perfect. You can actually hear it, especially in the first 30, 45 seconds where you can really hear it is where the notes change. And sometimes there's a, like, it feels like something's a little bit late or there's a phrase doesn't feel exactly right. And of course I've listened to it a hundred times. So I hear all those things, but for whoever's listening, if you pay attention in the first 30 seconds, you might be able to hear that it's not people, I guess. Okay. Well, let's listen for it. Listen for it. So late last year, you got to play keyboards on a gig with Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains. Uh, how did all that come about? A kind of a indirect sort of way. So um, that same composer that I, I did a lot of writing for last year, Tyler Bates, lives in a you know really nice part of LA, just in uh, Studio City. And his wife was out for a walk one day, and she saw this dude who looked like a homeless guy, according to her, sort of walking up the street. And Sort of went up and talked to him, just being like, oh, who's this guy? You know, there's a bunch of characters in L.A., you know. And it turns out it was Jerry Cantrell, and he lives on the corner. And so then they they all got to be friends, and uh, Jerry and Tyler got to be really close friends. And I think Jerry Jerry hadn't put out a solo record since, like, the early 2000s. 
And he was kind of, you know, I think he'd been working on some material and really wanting to do that. And so he had talked with Tyler about producing his next solo record. So Jerry hadn't played, I mean, Alice plays at least a couple shows a year still, because they've got such a huge fan base and everybody still always wants to hear him. But Jerry hadn't done any solo shows in like 14, 15 years. And so he really wanted to do that. And he asked Tyler to help him put a band together. And so... Tyler put out some feelers and we got uh, Gil Sharon to play drums, who's uh, was Manson's drummer. He's a really, really in-demand session player here. Wonderful guy. Absolute motherfucker. Just so in control and effortless. Uh, the bassist uh, is uh, James, James DiMonaco. I may not have his last name correctly. Um, and he's John Fogarty's bassist. And he was the bassist in Megadeth. Uh, Mike Rosen playing pedal steel and Mike's French uh, Quebecois guy who has been in LA for a long time. He works as a, you know, a tech and a engineer over at Schechter and Greg Pucciato, who was the front man for Dillinger escape plan was the other male vocalist. Cause you know, part of the Alice sound is two male singers, Tara Lopez as the female singer. She's got a great band called rituals of mine, which is sort of like if Portishead had started 20 years later, they may have been rituals of mine. She actually, she sounds a lot like Beth and it, like in a good way, not derivative. And I think what, what she and her musical partner do is, is really damn cool. And then, um, Johnny, whose name I feel so bad. I can't remember was playing acoustic guitar and then Jerry and Tyler, um, the dude who I was working with was playing electric. And he asked me, they asked me if I wanted to come and, and play keyboards. And so we did two shows at a synagogue actually in downtown LA that also moonlights as a, as a venue, which I find amusing, but, um, it was great. I've I've never been on stage before and seen people in the crowd looking back at me, not at me in this case at Jerry, but crying about what they're hearing because you know these for especially I look out there I see people my age it's like yeah this was pretty seminal for us. And like Jar of Flies came out and it was all over the radio when I was like 6. Something like that, 93 I think it was. And yeah, I had to learn I had to learn 26 songs in like 5 days. So that was intense. And, and Jerry was cool. He was like, he was like, I'm not going to tell any of you guys that you can't have music stands on stage. He's like, knock yourself out. So, you know, I made big, you know, printer paper charts with Sharpie. And I just, you know, initially I had notated out all the hooks. Cause you know, it's not like a lot of that music is especially complicated, but you know, the second verse has a two measure tag before the bridge. And the second chorus is one and a half times as long. There's little variations that take it outside of a more, you know, codified song form. And so just having a way to keep track of all those idiosyncrasies. And it's funny. So I had, I had my music stand to my right for those shows and I've seen video of the performances and every couple seconds, I'm like sort of looking sharply to my right. And it kind of looks like I have a, a tick. <sighs> Like I have a nervous, I have a nervous twitch because I'm there playing, you know, like looking out at the crowd, trying to engage with the crowd and the rest of the band and, you know, listen and everything else. And I'm like, you know, just kind of stealing these glances <laughs> over at this music stand because I couldn't fit it out in front of me because we were all packed on this tiny stage. Um, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, those were the, that was, those were the best shows I've, I've played in, in a couple of years. Cause it's kind of, I've talked to you about this before in the past too. It's, it's hard out here to have one foot in doing music for film and TV or, you know, uh, or just, you know, post audio in general. Um, and then one foot, you know, firmly rooted in, you know, live performance touring because you never like, it's like, Oh, I have shit. Like it turns out I have to do a bunch of revisions on this thing. I can't make band practice tonight or I, or I can't make the gig we have booked tonight. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's really hard to straddle that line. And I've played in a couple friends bands out here. 
um, and done a couple West Coast tours with them over the last six years since we've lived out here. And it is something that I very, very much want to get back to at some point down the line. But right now, you know, like there is a never ending, there's a lifetime of things to learn. And, and I, I, I am enjoying being in the niche that I've sort of found for myself and chosen to be in. But, you know, one of the things that is difficult is the rustiness of performance chops. And I've, and I've also, I know I've talked to you about this. Mm. It's like, you know, the jazz standards, like when, when I saw you last at some point we were at 55 and I think you just started playing, um, autumn leaves. And, you know, that's a standard I've, I've performed probably a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And I, and it took me one time through the head to actually remember the changes, let alone the melody. And of course, like it's super simple and I get it in there. I get it through once. It's like, okay, now we're good. But like, there are so many songs and standards that I thought were in me for life that I now need to read or like seriously brush up on. And in some cases, especially if they're particularly demanding, like anything bebop, like I struggle to play it. Because the kind of, you know, shedding that I did in the years before we met and then in the years that I lived in Korea and, and really for the, you know, the couple years after that, you know, practicing eight or 10 hours, playing eight or 10 hours a day, every day, playing, gigging out at least two nights a week, hopefully five, whatever, as much as I could. Um, I'm, you know, the better part of a decade removed from that now. And that does hurt my soul a little bit when I pick up an instrument and it's just not as natural. Mm-hmm. So you do miss performing live, I'm sure. I do very much. And yep. you know, if if a if a good touring opportunity presents itself, not with not with me as a band leader, but with me as a sideman for anybody, I would especially if if the money's right, I would definitely definitely consider it. Mhm. Yeah, I certainly hope you get a chance to. Uh so I think we have time to listen to one more of your tunes today. Could you talk to us a bit about Echoes? Sure. So for all of the Busan, South Korea viewership and I should say listenership and diaspora. This was a piece of music that was written not to picture, but after a series of conversations with our dear friend Jen Sotham for her second short film, which is called Spilled Milk, which uh, unfortunately, like so many things that she had done and had planned on doing, um, she never got to do. And it was the, the, the film was very her and I wanted something that could sort of transcend the present and also time jumps throughout the film. And I had a lot of fun making this. This is 90% of this is five string electric mandolin that I would basically tune the open strings to different chords, play them, and then put the instrument up on like a keyboard stand at, you know, chest height, basically as high as the thing can go strap it down, take some felt mallets and kind of just groove on the fretboard. And then I took all of that material and then chopped it up and resampled it in a lot of cases. So, you know, pitch and time are, are related, right? If you, you can change one without the other, but that's when you get all sorts of weird, nasty artifacts. But if you change pitch and time in equal ratio, you can theoretically stretch something to a limitless length. It just may not be in the pitch that you want anymore. So a good way to mitigate that is to stretch something exactly to 200%. So if you stretch something at 120 BPM in D, that's 10 seconds long, and you stretch that to 20 seconds, it's going to be in D an octave lower at 60 BPM. And so I did that in some cases multiple times. That's how I get the bass information in the song is I would take like single notes that I played in my open tunings and stretch them down three or four octaves in time and pitch. 
and sort of built this thing around that. And then I added some percussion stuff and some other things that were not electric mandolin, but I had a lot of fun making this. And this is one of, this is one of my favorite pieces of music I've ever made. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Liquid Sound. We would like to give a big thanks to Jordan Lewis for recording that episode and sharing his music with us. If you'd like to hear more of his work, please head on over to jordanlewismusic.com. And there's also a decent chance you might hear some of it next time you're channel surfing. For upcoming info about the Liquid Arts Network, you can find us at liquidartsnetwork.com. If you or someone you know would like your music featured on our show, send an email to liquidsoundpodcast at gmail.com. Please do subscribe to the Liquid Sound Podcast, share the show with your friends, and we would certainly appreciate it if you gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help listeners find us. On behalf of everyone at the Liquid Arts Network team, we thank you so very, very much for listening today. And until next time... Support independent music, support your local arts community, and support each other. And we will see you very soon. Jen, take it away. This is the first one I read, but I think I'll read more. He's pretty in light and yeah. Yeah, yeah. From there, the conversation. Took off weight.